Welcome to What in the World. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. My name's Andre Gonoella. And this is the first episode of the Biden administration. This is our first What in the World uh, under Big Joe. Andre, what's going on? Well, Big Joe has signed a lot of executive orders lately. So I think that's a, one thing you can sort of measure with his administration. These first, what is it now, eight days? It's been eight days. But we have seen some, we have seen the uh, federal alert system actually be employed by DHS for the first time in nearly a year to actually warn our citizens, all of us Americans, about the threat of domestic terrorism, the threat of domestic terrorism that would be fueled perhaps by fake news and other sorts of social media shenanigans, really that for a lot of people who still sort of uh, reject that the 2020 elections results were valid. And I mean, there was just a report yesterday of a guy being arrested with a couple of pipe bombs in his car. And there have been some other arrests made as well. But uh this is a real threat. I, I don't, this is the first time we really, I think, had this alert be issued for domestic terror. I mean, a decade ago, it used to be uh, Islamic extremism, the threat of al-Qaeda, the threat of ISIS. But now we sort of see this big national security threat coming from within, which is a scary thing to think about. It's a very scary thing to think about and just goes to show you the driver's not just the drivers, but the effects of fake news, uh, disinformation, misinformation, and how letting this sort of run rampant can really result in physical, concrete damage and violence that can threaten the lives of so many Americans. I mean, we saw this at the Capitol. We've lost a few police officers now due to actually being either killed by the rioters or two of them, I believe, committed suicide. So this is all very concerning. Ryan, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, it, it definitely suggests or, I mean, it explicitly states that the, the U.S. government is now fully aware of the threat, right? I mean, when you have, as you talked about, right, this was a system put in place in the wake of 9-11 uh, in regards to the threat of uh, Islamic extremist terrorism. And now we have this warning uh, for domestic, uh, call it far-right terrorism. and so. Uh, it's certainly, at least to me, it, it, it's, while deeply unfortunate and quite scary as someone who lives in D.C., uh, it's nice to see that at least the, the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. federal government, is starting to take more action or at least increase the awareness of the level of this threat because it is a significant threat. Right? I mean, our, the U.S. Capitol was overtaken. I, I still can't get that. You were smack dab in the center of D.C. too when that happened. Or, you no, you were in Florida when that happened. I, I was Unfortunately, I was I was basking in the sun, and I'm I'm glad I was not in DC as that happened because it's it's truly just I I, I can't measure yeah how it, how crazy it is. And so still, I mean, right, you're seeing these arrests, you're seeing uh, prosecution of people who took part uh, as they should be prosecuted because I mean they broke federal law, uh, and so they killed people, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I mean, you, you can't downplay it at all. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I was born in Sri Lanka, right? So, like, I keep track of the political situation there, and I always, I always sort of, uh, you know, rap on Sri Lanka because it has a chaotic sort of political system. About two years ago, there was chaos in the parliament. Uh, members of parliament were throwing things at each other. And then there was a situation, I think, 20 years ago in India where 
people basically stormed the parliament. They sat in, I think, the speaker's chair and so on. You know, you see that. Armenia. I mean, it's happened I mean, recently in Armenia and with after the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, they stormed the parliament building, right? I mean, so this- But, but you see, you see that and it's like, like, you didn't even know, right? Like with the United States of America, you don't expect it to happen in the United States of America because we always talk about this peaceful transfer of power. Maybe that's the reason we keep talking about it because we need to actively remind ourselves that we should have a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, other countries have peaceful transfers of power, but they're not always talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, democracy is not a sure thing, right? It's not safe anywhere. I mean, it's clear right here, right? I mean. We, we came very close to a just an even more grave situation. Uh, and I mean, yes, we've had a peaceful, quote unquote, peaceful transition of power, right? Joe Biden is now the president of the United States. Uh, but still, I mean, it was, it was you know, a, a handful of hours of uncertainty of what was going to happen. And then, and so, I mean, it's a, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And, and then you sort of have like people in power who are really disseminating uh, these conspiracies that can then motivate these acts of violence. For example, I don't know, if, Ryan, if you've been tracking this situation, but a newly elected congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who ran unopposed in a district in Georgia, um, mm. there's been like news about her in the past, within the last few years, liking posts that have basically called for the deaths of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats accusing them of treason and then saying, you know, the uh, the punishment for three treason is death. And she's in she's in the Congress right now. She is, has a platform of influence. And that, I think, is very concerning when you're looking at trying to stem and stymie these domestic threats, especially when you're talking about threats from within. Yeah. I mean, not only is it concerning that she's a U.S. Congresswoman, right? I mean, just because she, you know, peddles conspiracy theories, um, particularly about uh, Sandy Hook, and now she's on the education committee. That's, I mean, a wholly separate issue that we don't even need to get into. But what, I mean, what is underlying this is that there's a segment of the U.S. population that identifies with this and that elected her in office. And so it's, you can't, you can, you know, talk about what she says, what she does all day long. But I mean, it's, she is the result of a deeper symptom, symptomatic, you know, systematic uh, aggrievement within a segment of the U.S. population that needs to be addressed, or else we will see more of those type of individuals taking actions, running for office, and coming to positions of power where they can then peddle these conspiracy theories, which, of course, as we've seen, have led to deaths. Yeah. And I mean, you, you really see them going viral with these platforms on social media, right? Like they're able to spread their message more easily. These messages get retweeted. We had Dr. Joy Jeet Paul on last Fridays and we sort of dig a bit into that. But I mean, social media can really organize people to do to do different things. I mean, I mean, yesterday we saw the whole GameStop stock just skyrocket from oh. six bucks to $340 and all of the people on Reddit Millions of people, I think, on Reddit or hundreds of thousands of people on Reddit just bought GameStop stock. The CEOs of GameStop didn't know what was happening, but they all organized and they pushed this to the stratosphere, stock that shouldn't be in the stratosphere, and it sent the, the market into a tizzy. But I mean, think about that effect and then apply it to a lot of like really negative conspiracy theories, misinformation 
and then imagine what would happen if you have someone in power, you know, God forbid, having a call to arms or something like that. I mean, certainly a lot of the speech before the Capitol riots implied that, you know, we need to fight. We got to fight. Kept using the word fight. Very implicit. I mean, whether or not they knew what those words were doing, certainly many people took it to the next level and actually fought. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, I thought I wasn't going to mention former President Donald Trump. It's also, it's quite interesting to use that term former now. Um, Anyway, but I am going to use it. So we have, you know, as a a Senate trial uh, coming up, hopefully, I mean, it'll happen. It seems like it's going to happen. Uh, But he won't be also, though. Oh, no, absolutely not. I was just mentioning it because we, we, we talked about it um, a, a couple of weeks ago, and now we're actually getting to the point where it's going to happen. But yeah, it seems like all the momentum behind potentially convicting him in a sent trial has gone away. Uh, so that's putting that aside. Um, anyway, I mean, that's, that'll probably, you know, take up some of the news over the next you know coming weeks, uh, but it seems to be going nowhere. Uh, Andre, let's, because we've been talking so much about the domestic situation in the US, which is, of course, uh, quite bananas, uh, but things seem to be cooling off. Hopefully, let's <laughs> yeah. kind of turn outwards, talk about the world, which is kind of the point of this this type this you know weekly the world Friday right this weekly one in the world we've been kind of focusing domestically, but let's let's make a change, let's turn, uh, and let's talk about what is going on in the world. So I will start with Russia because uh, that's what I spend my my free time doing. <laughs> um, and we've talked a lot about Alexei Navalny, who is a, a Russian opposition politician, who is an anti-corruption blogger. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep in his background because we've talked about it in episodes prior, uh, but he has finally returned to Russia. Uh, he was, of course, poisoned, likely uh, with Putin's blessing by the uh, FSB, Russia's uh, domestic uh, security apparatus agency. Uh, and so he returned to Russia on January 17th only to be arrested uh, for some trumped-up charges. He initially was supposed to fly into Sheremetyevo Airport. He was diverted to Vnukovo Airport. Uh, I'm saying the, these two airports because the first one, Sheremetyevo, there were many, many uh, supporters of his present at the airport to a, kind of a welcome-home party. Uh, apparently, the, the Kremlin saw that as an issue, and so they diverted the plane. He got off the plane, went to passport control, was arrested, and... Uh, has you know been sitting in jail right ever since and so we've had the united states uh the eu other uh international actors come out and decry this arrest that is un- you know unfairly convicted and so he uh will be in detention likely until february 15th uh there were huge protests across russia because of this there are likely to be very big protests again this weekend and so we're we're going to see what happens but uh, this is not the last you're going to hear of Alexei Navalny, um, but I will say, I mean, there's there's many many people, many talking heads talking about, oh, this is you know the end of Putin. Uh, Alexei Navalny will be president of Russia, right? All of that stuff. I wouldn't go that far, right? Russia, as we we've talked about, Russia has a very competent uh, domestic security apparatus. They're very good at you know clamping down on protest movements. Uh, and so I, I would not hold your breath at, at looking at a democratic Russia anytime soon. Uh, but it is a symptom of some of the problems that Vladimir Putin uh, and the Kremlin are facing. 
And so uh, stay tuned to this. I mean, it's it's certainly fascinating to watch. So these are these protests any different than like prior protests? Because I mean, I've seen some photos of people just like standing out in the snow in negative 50 degrees Celsius weather. And like, it seems like there's a lot of motivation, but you said it's not going to go anywhere. Like, is like, is it really not going to go anywhere? I mean, listen, we, we've, we've certainly seen these before, right? I mean, you could, there's, you know, a handful that you could point to, uh, certainly have the scale. Uh, but again, I mean, yes, you know, when you, when you see people protesting in negative 50 degree weather, uh, it, it gives you some sort of optimism, right? That, you know, maybe, maybe this time it'll be different. Uh, the only reason that I'm deeply skeptical is that there, what, Right? How does change occur in Russia? Right? We, we've seen over time a small kind of deterioration of the Kremlin's power, but right? I mean, there's not going to be an insurrection in Russia, right? I mean, just like there's not going to be an insurrection in the United States. So, and, and that's not. I mean, that's not. We're not getting successful the, insurrection. Right. Yes, true. It, but it's not. You know, trying to discredit the validity of the Russian people's attempt to you know shepherd in a free and fair democratic Russia. I mean, it's just only to say that it's, you, you're facing a very, very experienced and strong uh, security apparatus that can deal with it and, and will deal with it, in my opinion. And so uh, what is most likely is that over time, we will see kind of a, a picking away at some of the institutions, some of the autocratic institutions that will democratize, uh, right? I mean, we've seen the election of of more liberal um, politicians because of efforts uh, by Alexei Navalny and others like him in civil society who are doing their very best to kind of change Russian institutions. Uh, but at its core, right, certainly as long as Vladimir Putin's in power, uh, you're, you're unlikely to see massive changes, particularly because of the, the power vertical he's instituted. And so, right, I mean, there are people much smarter than I that can go, you know, much more deep into the, the very reasons about it. Uh, but I mean, th- this is kind of what what my thinking is and how, how I assess it from this standpoint. Yeah, certainly. And uh, yeah, just crazy to think that Russia's really only had two presidents because I mean, Medvedev was a total non-entity <laughs> for his four years as president. <laughs> but I mean, the, the you know the second to last president, Boris Yeltsin, came to power because the Soviet Union fell apart. Then it's Vladimir Putin, and right. it's been twenty years, and we still got Vladimir Putin. Twenty-one years. Yeah. yeah. That's the only thing that might that might change is that you have this whole generation of young people that only know Vladimir Putin. And so they are coming to realize that this is not great, right? Russia, you know, the whole idea of, you know, making Russia great again or restoring uh, Russian greatness that was seen under the Soviet Union. Uh, and so the, the very people, the young people who are showing up uh, don't believe in that under the Putin regime. And so they're, you know, taking action via social media, right? If you, if you look at Russian social media, you look at Telegram, these, these private, or not private, these encrypted uh, messaging channels, you look at TikTok. I mean, uh, even on Russia's um, own kind of version of TikTok on Vkontaktia, VK, which is a Russian app, right? I mean, they are, I mean, it's, it's in full force, right? So civil society is lively in Russia, uh, but you, you still have to go up against the security apparatus. And that is, I guess, I've, I'm going to keep reiterating uh, the most challenging aspect to uh, a democratic Russia. Yeah. Also in uh, just, I want to cover this before we move on. There was a, well, actually next topic then. Uh, 
there was a twin suicide bombing in Baghdad. This is the first suicide bombing in Baghdad in nearly, well, over in over two years. Uh, ISIS has claimed responsibility for it, killed about 32 people. And, and according to CNN, these double bombings, these double twin suicide bombings are very common during sort of the insurgency era of Iraq between 2005 and 2007, before the troop surge in 07. Uh, certainly still shows that, you know, as much as we're focused on what's happening in the United States, the threat of ISIS, the threat of some of these Islamic extremist terror organizations exists. It still exists, especially Senate be cognizant of as we continue to draw down our presence in the Middle East, this will continue to be an issue. This will continue to be an issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ISIS is not, you can't completely defeat an uh, ideology. It, right, exactly. Yep. I mean, that is the fundamental problem, right? Whether it's uh, far right or far left, you know, terrorism at home, or you have Islamic terrorism that is exported to, um, you know, abroad to whether it's Europe, the United States, or other parts of the Middle East. Uh, that's the, the fundamental challenge is that you always have lone wolves. And you also have, you know, people that are able to reorganize, right? ISIS uh, did not just come out of, you know, the woodwork on its own, right? I mean, it, it was over time, it's evolved, and it, it became the organization that is today. And so it's, it's certainly something that the Biden administration and our, our international partners will have to look at very carefully in order to ensure that it doesn't resurrect itself in a meaningful way. Because at the end of the day, right, its whole the, the goal of ISIS is to establish a caliphate, and that can only be done through the acquisition of land. And if we deny them that, then you deny them right that legitimacy, which also kind of pushes back against their ability to recruit uh, effectively. And so uh, I, I imagine, particularly with Brett McGurk, who was the uh, U.S. special envoy to counter ISIS under uh, the Obama administration, he's back at the NSD leading Middle East policy. And so I know that he'll likely have an eye towards ensuring that ISIS doesn't uh, rear its ugly head again. And you talk about the ideology, and like one thing I really appreciated from your interview with uh, former four-star general Stanley McChrystal this past Monday was his discussion about the killing of Al-Zarqawi, the former leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So for many of our younger listeners, they don't know who Al-Zarqawi is because they were hardly conscious of current events back in 2006 and, you know, that whole era. But Al-Zarqawi, to many people in the U.S. government, might have been a deadlier force than Osama bin Laden, because what Al-Zarqawi was good at, and Al-Zarqawi led Al-Qaeda in Iraq after sort of uh, we deposed Saddam Hussein, and this was sort of where, like, why we're in Iraq for so long, because there were so many insurgencies that kept popping up. Well, he was one of the big motivators of those insurgencies that occurred between the Shia and the Sunnis that kept us there for so long, even still today. But he was good at spreading the ideology rather than his practice. I mean, sure, his practical leadership was effective, right? That's why he was a big problem. But the symbolic nature of him as a person, the symbolic idea of this leader who espouses this particular ideology made him far more, made him significantly deadly even after he died. Right, which really goes to show you that ideologies aren't so easy to kill, which is why we still have ISIS in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, if you guys want to learn more about this, I highly suggest 
uh, listening to that episode with General McChrystal, and also he has a, some fabulous books that you can read uh, as well, as well as a you know a many many hours of interviews with him on YouTube that I've watched just to kind of learn more about his experiences. Uh, Andre, let's let's turn to China just because it's something that uh, you and I have been talking about a lot. Something that you know we're we're really trying to kind of uh, dig into on, on the podcast, kind of writ large, just because it has been very clear that it is a main focus of the Biden administration. Uh, and we've seen that with the appointments of people on the National Security Council at the State Department uh, in key roles across the intelligence community. Uh, and it's also something that, you know, Joe Biden talked to with foreign counterparts in his you know first handful of calls uh, after becoming president of the United States, right? He, he talked with uh, NATO Secretary uh, General Stoltenberg uh, about China and NATO has this, this China project uh, in order to kind of prepare the alliance for the threat that is China. And so uh, it's, it's certainly a multifaceted uh, problem, challenge that the United States and its allies face. But, it's, it, it, but it does feel like it's kind of going beyond the economic realm, which we saw, uh, you know, for better or for worse, the, the Trump administration did uh, kind of fully take on China uh, from an economic perspective. But now I think we'll see the other perspectives, particularly politically, right, uh, with the, the Uyghurs, that, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Uh, classified as genocide mm-hmm. by the State Department in an act supported by both, well, Pompeo did it and Blinken supports it. Right. Yeah. And so whether it's whether it's that issue, whether it's the Hong Kong issue, uh, the South China Sea, China's you know claims in the South China Sea. And so uh, we will likely see a, a multilateral effort in order to combat China's claims, China's efforts to to you know, push back against U.S., NATO uh, influence. Uh, but concerningly, right, I mean, their economic might is a problem. Right. I mean, if you you look no further than their investments in the United States, uh, their investments in Europe, their investments in Asia. Uh, I mean, we you know, Andre, you know very well, right? The the Sri Lanka, in Sri Lanka right? That case is just a perfect case of debt trap diplomacy, whereby the Chinese have a hold over uh, the the Sri Lankans because of their massive infrastructure investments. We see this through Belt and Road, and so uh, hopefully, right, the EU is embarking on this investment treaty with China. And which the U.S. is appalled over because uh, the economic ties to China are not bad on their on the surface, but when you dig a little deeper, right, the the reasoning behind uh, this is the the interdependence, right? It's it's very hard to uh, undergo you know foreign po- hard foreign policies when you have such strong economic ties because when you when you push back against some of their actions, then they'll say, hey, well, look at our economic relations. Do you really want to jeopardize those? And in many times, particularly smaller countries, the answer is no. We don't want to jeopardize our economic relations with China because that'll cripple us. And and also, you know, when you're looking at countries like Sri Lanka and some of these smaller countries, they are very corrupt. They're very corrupt. The leaders are very, and I can speak to this from experience in Sri Lanka, are very short sighted. They want to win their elections and do things in the short term to ensure power even if that's going to drive up the debt insurmountably. I mean, we have we sort of saw this across Sri Lanka and uh, across governments, to be honest. But I mean, you know, going back to the overall question of China, if you paid attention to any of uh, Antony Blinken's uh, confirmation hearings, they did ask him about how he viewed the Trump administration's China policy. And he did agree 
that China is our biggest problem, essentially, in terms of geopolitics. It's our biggest rival. So he agrees with the Trump administration's prioritization of China. However, he said and noted that he would have done it by different means. What those different means will be will be sort of interesting to see, but certainly Ryan will probably be a very multilateral approach to approaching the China uh, question, especially when you're talking about Biden's future sort of summit of the democracies and so on. Right. Yeah. I mean, multilateralism is very hard. And so, you know, hopefully we'll see some some action on that front. But at the end of the day, right, wrangling all these different uh, interests with all these different countries uh, is a challenge. And so I know that, you know, given uh, President Biden's experience in, in foreign policy as vice president and also in, in the U.S. Senate, right, he knows the players really well and they know him really well. And I think that's an asset, right, because they I mean, there's trust there. And so that kind of makes it a bit easier. Whereas when you're dealing with other leaders that we've had, uh, the, the trust isn't there. And so you never know what's, what's going to happen because you don't have that uh, you know, level of certainty that makes uh, deal-making a, a bit uh, less stressful or maybe a bit uh, more feasible. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it'll certainly be interesting to see kind of what uh, the Biden administration does on all of these issues of, of foreign policy and national security. Uh, but we really just don't know yet. It's quite early. We've still have there's one more. Yeah, thing. Well, I mean, there's all these confirmations that we have that we'll talk about at some point. But go ahead, Andre. New start. New start was extended uh, for, I believe, another five years. It was set to expire in about two weeks. But President Biden came in, and he and Putin have agreed to extend a nuclear treaty, a nuclear arms control treaty. So that's another big piece of news. That's another big piece of news. It's important, right, to ensure that right our, our nuclear weapons are. Or at least at a level that, I mean, at the at the end of the day, right? I, extending new starts important. It wouldn't have likely led to nuclear Armageddon had it not be extended. But it's a step in the right direction, right? You don't want an arms race, right? You you don't want these agreements to expire because then it, that just kind of allows open violation of the terms that were under the agreements. And so, uh, I, I it's certainly nice to see. I think anyone who watches uh, nuclear security, U.S. Russia relations is you know, taking a, a deep breath and kind of sitting back and relaxing because this was something uh, that was kind of hotly debated that and also the open skies treaty, which we'll see what happens with that. That's just about, you know, monitoring flying over, you know, the capitals uh, of both countries. But putting that aside, anything else on your plate, Andre? Uh, no, not really. It's just interesting to, you know, watch these nuclear treaties, some of which have been negotiated during the Cold War, you know, come up for renewal, some of them not being renewed. I mean, you think about the INF treaty. I remember I was, I was a big presidential history buff, so I would read a lot about how uh, President Reagan and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev of the Soviet Union spent painstaking hours in summits from 85 through around 87 negotiating the INF Treaty at the Geneva summits, at the Reykjavik summit, and then, you know, in Washington and so on. And then to sort of see it, sort of see the circumstances change in this decade, in this era. And, you know, some of these treaties end, some of them are discussed uh, as to whether they should end. And it's interesting. It's, it's a very interesting topic. It's a very interesting topic. Yeah. And while you were saying that, that somehow, you know, sparked in my head that climate change. I don't know why, but I was just thinking of John Kerry. Uh, he, of course, is right, the climate envoy. And so that's certainly something that the Biden administration will be focusing on heavily. Uh, and we'll see both domestic and, and foreign policy implications there. Uh, I don't know why I came into my head. I just thought about it. 
Um, but I mean, that's that. Well, climate change and you know that whole existential threat is a very big thing for us young people to worry about because I live in San Diego. I don't want to be underwater in 25 years. <laughs> I would appreciate the beach not coming to my doorstep, literally. But uh, if folks, if you want to sort of learn more about our what what we think is going to happen to the Biden administration, some of the things we anticipate happening. Uh, Ryan, myself, and our editor-in-chief of the newsletter, Will, Will Solmson, uh, put together the newsletter this week. We sort of give you a rundown of the cabinet picks that have to do with foreign policy primarily. Uh, Ryan has put together a great sort of bit on what we can expect with certain regions of the world, certain allies, certain adversaries. And then we'll put together a really interesting article on whether we can predict the Biden administration's foreign policy through the tweets of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. So please check that out. Uh, we spend a little bit of time putting that together. Should be sort of comprehensive, but also, you know, just touches the surface of so many of these issues. But if you want to learn more, take a look at the newsletter, subscribe to the newsletter, subscribe to all of our episodes. We have a great episode with the Brookings Institution's president, General John Allen, releasing this Monday. And yeah, keep your eyes out for that. Thank you. Thank you. See you all next week. <laughs>